You are listening to the Chasing PRs podcast. Today we talk all about running shoes. What's the anatomy of a running shoe? And what are the things you need to pay attention when searching for the perfect running shoe? If you are like us and love running shoes, stay tuned. Hi, we are your hosts, Rochelle Weeks and Diego Alcubierre. And with over 20 years of combined experience in coaching and physiotherapy, we created this podcast to help everyday runners who want to make the most out of their training and achieve new personal records while managing work, family, and life outside running. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Chasing PRs. I am Diego. I'm Rochelle. And we are super happy to be this here this week. I forgot to research one thing because I don't know why, but we are the number two podcast in fitness in Belgium. In Belgium. In Belgium. That's really interesting. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, everyone. If you are listening in Belgium, thank you very much. And we'll make an effort to have, it will be interesting to have a run of the week of chasing sprints of Belgium. I want to. Oh, yeah. I'm going to make an effort for that would the be next cool. few weeks. If you're from Belgium and listening, send us a recommendation. Yeah, yeah. that will be awesome. And my, I, I, I also learned yesterday, it's very interesting or curious. My son's music teacher is from Belgium. Oh, interesting. In the same day, I, like, I, learned two, I found out two things about Belgium. It's, Maybe they're sharing our podcast oh, with their friends. It was him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start uh, talking about our past week of training. How was your week? It was good. That's good. Yeah, I did 61 kilometers last week cool. and my long run was 26 kilometers So and it went well. Felt good. Okay. Yeah, everything's like fingers crossed. I'm just kind of slowly. That was my third week doing around 60 kilometers. So this week I'm going to try to do 65. Okay. Hang out there for a couple of weeks and just keep, see what I can get my volume safely up to for the marathon. For the marathon. Okay. 26 kilometers is 16 miles. Yeah. And 61 kilometers is... 38 miles. Yeah. When you say it in miles, it doesn't sound that impressive. I know. Right? Like, I ran more than that. <laughs> yeah. 38 miles. That's really the Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it was good. Everything feels good. And... Even with the winter storm and the footing. Yeah. I went, I, I drove around Sunday morning trying to find good footing. Okay. Like the path I was thinking of going on was snow covered and soft. And I just, some people can run in that without issues, but I tend, my Achilles gets a bit grumpy. Yeah, so. we always talk about the Achilles. Yeah, my stupid Achilles. So <laughs> I went, I drove around and found a good path and it was actually 80%. Runnable. It was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, I think I did my 70K week again. Yeah. Uh, but I did, I sometimes do some crazy things in my training just to get used to. Because I found out that me and all the runners I talk to, we try to make our training perfect right? We have the perfect breakfast or try to. We, especially during long runs, if we are doing a speed workout that night, we try to eat uh, something light so we don't, we're not heavy. Uh, we try to go at the best day of the day. Now in winter here, like I, I usually go at 11, 12, that it's the, the best weather in, yeah. in quotes. A bit warmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little colder. Yeah. But I did two, two things that I learned a few years ago. The day we did our first track workout, if you follow us on, on Instagram, you can see what track means. It's yeah. just a parking lot covered in snow. But we, do, we did laps there, so we call it track workout. Yeah. But I had a hamburger just before, just 
to be heavier and not feel very comfortable with my stomach. You tried to? No, I like did. Like you planned to do that? No, I did it last Thursday. Okay. And on Sunday, I have my long run. I usually do my long runs on Saturdays, but the weather was terrible on Saturday, so I changed it to Sunday. And I usually have my regular uh, breakfast, oatmeal, an apple, some nuts. But I had like a big IHOP uh, breakfast, pancakes, uh, eggs, hash browns, bacon. I really had a big breakfast. You ate all the calories. Yes. To, just to feel uncomfortable and heavy during my training. So if anything happens during race, you're already trained or you're training your gut and, and, or, or running uncomfortable. That's so funny. And I think, I think it's very interesting because if, if, we, if we try to train perfectly all the time and feel awesome and light and fast, if, it, that's, if that doesn't happen during your marathon, you're laughing. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture eating that. I think I would get a kilometer in and be like, yeah, I'm done. Well, that's that the, that the, the trick part. If you try to train it, um, you get used to it. And I think for the track, because I was telling some of my patients have been starting their, their track workouts, whether it's a real track or a fake track like us. And I've been telling them, like, if you haven't done speed in a couple months, ease into this. Don't, don't do the pace that you were doing back in September and yeah. October. So at least having a big meal burger yeah. right before the track session means you're going to slow down so you can't yeah. go all out. I was, I was, well, it's lower than on summer or on, on the fall. Yeah, but me too. I, I, the, the footing was terrible. Well, yeah. no, it wasn't terrible. It was not great. I feel it. like, so I, I did a post on this and uh, on my um, Running with, with Rochelle page and that workout in October, I probably would have done 410 pace, 415 okay. minutes per kilometer. And I did like a 445 and it was the footing, but I also told myself, don't, don't go fast. Yeah. I was running with our friend Crystal and we could chat a little bit. Like I made sure... I wasn't doing like a 90% effort on day one. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I haven't done speed workout since mid-October, I think, mm -hmm. right before the marathon. So yeah, I also used to. That workout, for, we, we did, we did 1,200s. And usually in, in, in peak training in October, two weeks before the marathon, I think I could run this in 330 per kilometer. And I did four minutes. Per so yeah, yeah also, so we had also the same strategy. Yeah. And yeah, the, the goal is to start to build speed, but not get injured. Yeah. Right. And you don't want to peak at the wrong time. Because if you start slamming the speed workouts now, you might peak in March and your marathon's not till April. So yeah, it makes sense uh, to ease into it. Totally. Not yet. Totally. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, okay. So we, today we're talking about running shoes. It's a very tricky topic because it's not hard. It's impossible to recommend the perfect running shoe for one person. Mm -hmm. Even even for one person, year after year or a few years after a few years, your perfect running shoe can change based based on new technologies, on how you are adapting, you are becoming a better runner, you are lighter, you are heavier, you are stronger. So it, it's hard. But we we are going to talk about the different components or the anatomy of a of a running shoe, and Rachel is going to talk about some very interesting uh, things like physiotherapy-wise, like on injury-wise, what do you need to pay attention if you have certain, certain types of, of injuries? Um, and yeah, we're just uh, going to go through the anatomy of a, of a shoe and what are the things you can focus on 
or pay attention to to find your own perfect shoe. Because yeah. that's that's an individual thing. Totally. I get messages saying, you know, I'm going to do my first marathon and this is what I'm running in. What are your suggestions? I've never met the person. And <laughs> there there is no answer to that question. And if you post in a running forum, what's the best running shoe for blank? You will get 50 different answers and they're all probably right. Exactly. Unless someone's recommending like a tennis shoe or something like that. But <laughs> something stupid. everybody's right. You just have to figure out what works for your feet. Yeah. But you you can start somewhere. And that's the goal of this mm -hmm. episode. So you don't start blank and go buy 10 different shoes. So you have an idea of, okay, I need to focus on the mids or the upper. And we're going to talk about all of, all of those. And um, yeah. So let's start with the upper of the shoe. The upper of the shoe is the part that touches your the upper part of your Right, the top part, the, yeah, the top part, the top part of the shoe. I don't think there's too much to say about this, other than uh, like the breathability of the of the material and how light they are. Someone can say, "How much can you save on the?" We have a pair of shoes here, just to know what we're talking about. Uh, how light can the upper? How, how much the upper can really help? to make a shoe lighter. And with the new technologies, I really think they can help make a shoe lighter. And that's the number one goal, to make it readable, to make it lighter. And if you're in, during winter, that's where the Gore-Tex part goes. So your feet stay warm and dry. Mm -hmm. I, I, po I chose the wrong shoes the other day. It was cold out, but the footing was pretty good. And I had a really light pair of shoes with the mesh being really thin and my feet were freezing. I'm like, right, I don't have the Gore-Tex only for when the footing's bad. I also have it because it's very cold out and I just need that little extra layer on the top of the shoe. Yeah, me too. If, if it's Gore-Tex, it's like a trail grippy mm -hmm. shoe. I think there's one version of Socony. I don't know if they're selling this year. I, 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 saw, it, I saw it last year, like the winter version of their, of their shoes. And they're like re they're regular shoes, just the upper is uh, waterproof. It's not mm -hmm. Gore-Tex, but it's waterproof. So that can... That can that's why we need 10 pair of shoes each. each yeah, runner. <laughs> I think it depends. Yeah, the upper probably is the most important one. Other than the sole of the shoe, it's the most important thing to change based on the seasons because what you pick for the upper part is going to look different summer because you need breathability versus winter where you want some protection from the elements. Yeah, but I think the, the only thing you need to pay attention in the upper is that part. The, mm -hmm. you, you, you want it breathable if it's hot. You want some waterproofness and weightproofness if, it, if it's cold. Yeah, and the other important part that it goes into the midsole, but let's talk about talk about the the wide toe box. Yeah, the toe box. So this is something. Some shoes are more narrow than others. So when we talk about the toe box, it's literally just where where your toes are in the shoe. And I have a very wide foot, and it's gotten wider since I had Emily. I so, I, I hear that a lot. Every woman I know that has babies, they're feet got wider and bigger. Yeah, it, it has to do like the ligament laxity. The ligaments just kind of loosen up a little bit. So one of the arches of my feet, it's called the transverse arch, has kind of fallen a little bit since I was pregnant. And so my wide foot is even wider. So I really <laughs> have to be picky what I wear. So shoes like ultras and uh, topos have very, very wide toe boxes. They're meant to fit the anatomy of the foot. But then you can go to like New Balance and Hoka's have wide options. Wide versions, yeah. So you can get the normal one or, or go wide. So I think it's a, it's a personal preference thing if you want that space and it depends how wide your foot is. 
But there are a couple injuries that would actually benefit from a wider toe box. So one is just bunions. So when you have your big toes drifting inwards, it's often from years of wearing narrow shoes. So a lot of women who wore stilettos to work and heels and really narrow, narrow, because really dress shoes don't look very cute when they have, have wide toe boxes. No. So most women's shoes are narrow. It can cause bunions. So one of the things to try to prevent it getting worse is to wear a sneaker with a wide toe box. But then there's injuries that happen at the ball of the feet where you can almost feel like there's a marble under the ball of your foot when you're running or like the middle toes can go numb and be burning and, and be painful. And these are like Morton's neuroma or metatarsalgia. Okay. So those conditions, which are basically pain and burning at the ball of the foot, can really benefit from a wide toe box. And you have a wide toe box and the Nike Alpha Flies are not very wide. Mm -hmm. How do you find those? There, I've, I've only run in them a couple of times. So I've done the half marathon and a 5K race. And they're actually okay. I think it's because the upper, the mesh is really stretchy. Flexible again. So I almost feel like my wide foot kind of hangs out over the edge a little <laughs> bit. Like it's stiff enough to like hammer it in. So it actually, it worked. We'll see in Cornwall if it works for a marathon. Because I've never done yeah. more than 21 kilometers in them. Okay. Cool. Yeah. But that's okay. If you have wide feet, that's one part that you can focus on. Start to choosing your, your shoe. Mm -hmm. And Griselle just mentioned a few things that, Oh, I never thought about needing a wide toe box shoe. If you have numbness in your toes, mm -hmm. you, said, you feel like a marble in the ball of your foot. Yeah, or pain at the ball of the foot. Or pain. Maybe it's a good idea to start trying mm -hmm. a shoe with a wide box. And if you go into a good running shoe store where they know what they're talking about and you say, I need a shoe with a wide toe box, you don't need to know what to look for. They should just bring out their options yep. and you try them on and see if they feel good. Awesome. Perfect. So yep. that's, that's the upper. Then we're, we're going to talk really quickly about laces mm -hmm. and just because of two things. One, because if you've ever used or see a pair of alpha flies or vapor flies, their lasers are, we were just discussing how to call this. How, I know it's hard when it's a podcast and we can't yeah. show. Like there's ridges on the laces. There's little bumpy yeah. edges. Bumpy edges. And they do that. They did that on purpose because it's harder for their for them to unlace. So you're not going to be tying your shoes mid-run just because of these little thing, just ridges in the in the, yeah. in the laces. I've had uh, shoelaces that were very round, yeah. like tubular kind of, and they were so annoying because I would tie them so tight and they would come loose. So I've, I've ripped them out and replaced them with new laces. I, I usually use the flat ones. The normal but, ones, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the ridges... They definitely seem to work. It makes sense. And the other one, the, the other thing is that if, if you're very picky with how your shoes are tight, or how tight are your shoes, uh, maybe you can get some like elastic uh, laces, that ones that you don't need to place every time. They're just, triathletes do use them a lot because you get out of the bike and you just pop the shoes on. You don't, you don't need to like, yeah. like tie your shoelaces. If you shoelaces. have to tie your shoes, that's like another 30 seconds. Yeah, but a lot of runners do it because that's a really interesting way to have always the same amount of pressure or tightness in your, in your shoe. That's interesting. That would be good for races because I'm sure runners listening have done this. I've done it. I've done it. Where you untie, you're nervous and your race is about to start and you have three minutes and you think, right, are my laces tight enough? So you've done your warm up and then you untie the laces and you retie them and you pull them really tight. 
and then two kilometers in, you're like, oh crap, my this laces is are way too tight. Yeah. So something like that would be good because then you can't do that. That happened to me in my first marathon. Yeah. Mid-marathon, I had to stop and re re retie my, my laces. Better to tie them, do the warm-up, and then don't touch them. Leave them alone. You're, you're going to get nervous. It's part of, the, it's part of it. But trust the trust the process. So, but if, if it's something that really stresses you out, maybe those kind of stretchable, not tightable, I don't know how to call them, shoelaces are a good option. They're mm -hmm. super cheap on Amazon. Make it happen. <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention, because this has happened to me with lacing, I have a really high arch. Okay. And I've purchased shoes before where my toes go. So all, not like a Morton's Neuroma, like all of my toes are are just tingling and numb. And if I loosen the shoe, the laces, it feels better, but then my ankle has no support. So you can actually take like the lace, the holes that are at the top of your arch. So if you look at the laces and you have a high arch, you look at where the holes line up, where the highest peak of your arch is in the shoe. Okay. And then you unlace to there and you don't cross over on the top of the foot. You kind of skip a hole. So you go straight up either side instead of making the X over the top of the arch. Okay. And then you continue. So it looks like a normal laced up shoe, but right in the middle, it just goes straight up on either side instead of across. Okay. And I've done that and I've suggested it to a number of patients and the numbness is gone. And it doesn't change like the support from the shoe. Yep. It, it works really well. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, talking about tying the shoelaces, I, I've tried you see that on TikTok or Instagram. Like, 10 different ways of tying your shoelaces and this one helps with this and this does help with that. I tried all of them and for me, none of them worked. Oh, really? Not, and it was not of, of a specific thing like uh, numbness on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on your foot. Uh, it was just like, it was, it's going to have you have better support and you're going to run faster and stupid things like that just because how you tie your laces. Uh, so... Only if you have like a specific situation like the one you just mentioned and you just gave a great way to, to improve those, uh, don't pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. that, that, those are the little things that people always ask me and they, they, they think they're going to make the difference in their training or in their marathon. They just go run more and you'll be better. And you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The heel counter, that, that's the next part we want to talk about. That This one is also super easy. It's uh, the back part of the shoe that helps you help your heel stay in place. So some shoes have them, some shoes don't have them. I also I always come back to the Alpha Flies and the Variable Flies because they have they have them. They have all the. That's why they sometimes I think they are so expensive because they have all those little things that other shoes sometimes don't have. Uh, it's something you need to get used to it if you are not used to it. But if you find that no matter how you tie your laces, how tight you tie them, your your foot start like slips off on the back. Mm -hmm. Like if it's loose, maybe considering that, that uh, having that uh, heel counter can can help. And uh, as Rachel mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, just go to a store, <laughs> running shoe store, and just try them and feel feel the difference. You're gonna try them it just another little thing you can you can improve if it's something that it's bothering you because mm -hmm. sometimes we talk about things that people are going to be 
I need those rigid shoelaces and I need uh, to tie my shoelaces differently and I need to have those heel counters and that's not always the case. They're just These are just ideas and different parts of the shoes that you can consider. If there's no no problem with your right hand, don't change anything. Yeah, leave them alone because yeah. I often say to runners, people get injured, runners get injured and the first thing they do Go buy a new pair of shoes. But blame the shoes. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like if you look at their Strava profile, they've gone from like consistently doing 30K a week to like 55. It's the shoes. Oh, it's my my shoes. I need new shoes. So it's not often the shoes, but sometimes if you've made an aggressive change in your shoe, it it is. Or it's at least part of the puzzle. Like if suddenly you've got a really big change or you just didn't need to make a change, but your friend said they love these shoes and they're totally different than yours and you go get them anyway. Yeah. It's just the foot's not used to them and then you can get into injury trouble. Yeah, I once read a, a, a Facebook comment, a lot of comments in one Facebook post, and one person said like, uh, I just, I had these shoes that I, I can remember and I had knee pain and I bought this new pair of shoes and the moment I started running in, in those, I still had uh, uh, knee pain. So what do you recommend? Running shoe wise. And everyone is like, it's not a running shoe, yeah. dude. You are, Go see physio. You are injured. <laughs> yeah. There's something wrong with you. It's not, the shoes are not the sol- solution to everything. But it's it's an easy solution because it's it's not depending on you. And, and it's, it's a fun. quick fix. Runners like the quick fixes. Exactly. They don't want to be told that they ramped up their mileage too quick or that they dove into track intensity wise too quick. They just want, quick they get to go shoes. shopping. <laughs> Runners love shopping for shoes and they want the quick fix, but yeah. it's usually not there. Okay. Now let's talk about, so we've talked about the upper laces, heel counter, and the insole. The insole is just a little piece of layer or, or, or padding that it's inside the shoe. And I think the only thing you need to pay attention here is if you wear orthotics, if those insoles can be removed. Because, for example, the... <laughs> People are going to hate me because I say Alpha Flies and Vapor Flies like a thousand times. I love those shoes. Uh, they are glued to the to the shoe. So you can't remove them. You can, but I don't know if I will. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to mess around and experiment with a very expensive shoe. Like exactly. That. Yeah. So just pay attention to that. If, if you can if you can remove it. All of them are super thin. Uh, some of them, uh, like Skechers, have uh, like memory foam insoles. Uh, they feel great. I used to to have Skechers a, a few years ago. They feel great, but for like two weeks, and then the yeah, the memory foam yeah, they, they lose, lose their, their cushion yeah. pretty quick. Yeah. So don't don't fall for that. <laughs> uh, that's about insoles. We don't. We don't. But midsoles, I think that's the that's the big biggest thing you can focus on in shoes. The different kinds of midsoles. And, okay, what's the midsole? The midsole, it's like the white part that you see in a shoe. Yeah, that makes sense. We can, we can say that. Uh, that's, that's the midsole. And that's where most of the technology in shoes are. We're going to talk about the different types of materials about, for, of, uh, of midsoles. But let's start with two easier <laughs> or shorter things to talk about. The heel drop. What it is, why you need to pay attention to it, and if it can lead to some injuries or or pain. So what's a heel drop? So the heel drop, basically, it's how high the heel is 
how high the cushioning under the heel is versus how high the cushioning under the ball of the foot yeah. or the toe box is. So it's that slope of the shoe. And, and most running shoe stores, like I know at Sports 4 here in Ottawa, they often have underneath the name of the shoe, they'll have the heel drop, toe drop written there because it's, it's probably one of the most important things in the shoe. And it's usually in millimeters. When yes. it's usually it's in millimeters. Yeah. So it's, uh, for example, a big heel drop, it's like 10 milliliter, mm -hmm. millimeters. A low heel drop, it's like four, mi four millimeters, right? Yeah. There are some shoes, we're going to talk about minimalist shoes in, in a second, but uh, 10 to 14 millimeters is a high one and four is a low one. Yeah, and you can go as low as zero. And then, like some people, I think, get a little bit confused because they think heel toe drop just means the cushion yep. on, in the shoe. But I had a pair of Ultra Duos when I did my 50-kilometer Ultra, and they had so much cushion. They were huge, but they, they were zero, zero drop. drop. Yeah. It was just the cushion under the ball of the foot equaled the height of the cushion under the heel. So the thing I know, I ask a lot about heel-toe drop with my running patients because sometimes if we switch, we can actually cause trouble. So if we go from, say, a 10-millimeter heel-toe drop to a 4 that's a six millimeter difference, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. It is. Because what happens is the the lower the heel toe drop, the more your foot, Achilles, and calf is going to work. So it's it's fine to go to a four, but you need to make the transition very gradually because if you do it too quick, your Achilles is used to running with the eight or the 10 millimeter drop, for example. And now it's in a four and it has to work harder. And you've just done 20 kilometers and now you wake up and your heel is sore. Um, the same thing happens going the other direction. I actually made this mistake before because I'm not, there's so much going on in the shoe industry. I don't walk into a shoe store and know all the numbers and the details. So I went in and I, it was just this winter that I was having to run a lot on the snow and the ice and my Achilles was grumpy. Okay. And I went in and I asked for an eight millimeter heel toe drop shoe because I was in a four. And I thought, well, if I go from a four to an eight, that's not a huge jump and I'll do it gradually. And they gave me all the shoes and I came out with an A6 shoe. I can't even remember the, the name of it, but it was a 12. Wow. And they told me it was an 8. So I went from a 4 to a 12. And so what happens when you go in that direction, lower to higher, is you get way more pressure on the ball of your foot and on the big toe joint. So my left big toe joint got really cranky. And it was really sore. Like I, I could keep running, but it was more after I ran, it was really grumpy. And then I went into a running shoe store in Ottawa and they looked at the shoe and well, they were, well, these are 12 millimeter drop. What were you in before? And I just was like, oh, they told me it was an eight. Okay. So I should have checked myself, but both directions going low to high or high to low, you have to be careful. Okay. And, but why, why do people want to, why those difference, right? I think, why, why do I want to run on a four millimeter? Why do I want to run on a 12 millimeter? What I've, what I've researched and heard and what I tried is like, if you run in a four millimeter or lower shoe, you force, in quotes, your body to land more midfoot. So this was like uh, in like 2010, 2008, when the, the, bo the book Born to Run came out, everyone got obsessed with the minimalist shoes, with heel drop. Uh, I got obsessed with minimalist yeah, shoes and heel drop. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Um, and it's like, okay, no, it, it's really bad to land on your heel. So those four millimeters or zero millimeters uh, shoes 
help you to land more midfoot. And it, that's, that's true because you don't have that, that extra space in your heel to, to land on your heel. So you are forced to it. That's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's mm -hmm. just something you need to be, you to be aware. I think personally that it really helped me to become a better runner running on four millimeters because it forced me to, to like improve my, my running form. Uh, but then after a few years, when I started to ramp up my mileage, I started to get a lot of heel and Achilles problems. Um, I, 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 I ran on Salconic Imbaras that are four millimeter shoes, uh, for years and years and years. And I, I always struggle with my Achilles. I always have to massage them and to put some uh, like creams on it and try to, I, I, I manage the, the pain throughout my whole cycle, training cycle. But then when I discovered the amazing and beautiful Alpha Plus and Burple Flies, uh, they're, they're like 12 millimeters, 10, 12 millimeters drop. You should be sponsored. I, I, I would love that. They would be somebody. awesome. Yeah. And uh, my Achilles pain went away. And then it was okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it really helped at the beginning, I think, to, to improve my running form. Now I can run in these 10, 8 millimeter shoes and I still land on my midfoot and my running form is, is good. But, but my Achilles don't have that stress because of the, of the low mm -hmm. drop. And I think with the high heel toe drop, like I've met people running in 12 millimeter heel toe drop shoes and they're landing either on the midfoot or with a mild heel strike, which is perfectly fine. We just don't want them landing in an aggressive overstriding heel strike. It's, it's more just being aware that a really built up heel can lend you to, towards heel striking. And I've had people where they have knee pain and they have a really high heel. And if we, if I'm trying to get them to stop overstriding, I can do it in the 12 millimeter drop shoes. I just find it easier if I slowly get them in a lower yep. heel toe drop shoe because they can feel the ground a little bit better and it's a little bit easier to to feel where you're making contact, basically. Yep. I just researched it and the vapor flies are eight millimeters. Eight millimeters, okay. So um, that's about the, the heel drop. What can cause, what injuries can cause, and why can you choose one or the other? Just uh, if you are happy with your eight, 10 millimeters, stay there. And let's talk about those, the minimalist shoes super, super quickly. What are minimalist shoes? Because right now we have a big, the industry is going towards maximal, I don't know how to say. Yeah, maximalist. Maximalist yeah. shoes. Hocus, for example, were the first one that really came big with these big shoes and stacks and everything. But the, I think Born to Run has 90% of the fault about minimalist shoes. I don't, know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but they, he put the Christopher McDowell, McDonald, something like that's his name. Uh, put the minimal shoe in the mind of mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of runners. What is it, and why do you think it's bad or good? Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're necessarily bad or good. But so, so what the minimal shoe is? It's just a shoe that has very little support. So there's not a lot of cushion. Usually, the toe box is wide to let the foot move around naturally. You can twist it into like this small little cylinder. You can fold it in half easily. Like it's very flexible uh, some shoes you pick up and you try to bend it and it's like you're bending a piece of plywood it just doesn't move so minimal shoes just don't have a lot of support and there's there's arguments to be made for and against them so the arguments for them is that in theory it would make sense that they would strengthen up your feet a little bit because you don't have a lot of support on the shoes 
So if you you run in them, it makes your intrinsic foot muscles, think of like the core of your foot, it makes them work a little bit harder. So it makes your feet stronger. There's an argument to be made that they help with running form because you're less likely to be slamming down into an aggressive heel strike when you don't have a lot of padding and protection there. That's not always the case. I've had people, I've seen people running in minimal shoes and they're overstriding and really heel striking. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is not going to end well. Um, but that's the arguments for the minimalist shoes. But the arguments against, there's a couple. One is when the minimalist shoes first came out, like 2010, everybody was wearing, like I had a pair of the New Balance Minimus, they were called. Yeah, me too. I loved them. They were good. But if you made the switch to them too quickly, we were seeing a huge increase in stress fractures of the feet, Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, lots of foot issues because people were jumping into the shoes too quickly and sometimes not changing their form. So they were really landing on an aggressive heel in these minimalist shoes that had no support. So a lot of people got injured with, with the transition. So if you do want to make the transition to the minimalist shoes, I think it's important to do that gradually so that you don't cause any injury troubles. The, I really got into wearing the ultras. I love the ultras. I love the wide toe box. It was especially after I was pregnant with Emily, I needed that room. But they're not great for performance. Like there is no one at the elite level that is winning marathons wearing ultras. Yeah. Not yet anyway. I just know that brand because you were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they are like, I have runners who love them and they wear them, but they're not the best for performance because they're not super cushiony and supportive. They're not going to help you in your races. So that was one reason I moved away from them. They're in my shoe rotation and we'll talk about that later. Um but I don't wear them for races because I want every advantage I can get. And that's usually the super shoes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now let's talk about the type of material of the midsole. I think it's, for me, it's one of the most important pants. You need to find that material that really you feel comfortable with. So we have pretty much four types of types of material. EVA, gas infused EVA, PEBA, I don't know how to pronounce it, P-E-B-A, or TPU. Okay. So the most common one is EVA or EVA. Uh, call it, call them whatever you want. I think most of the shoes you can go and buy have EVA material. A few examples are pretty much all Hoka's have those. The A6 Flight Foam is EVA, Brooks, and the Power Run of Salconi. And I believe the React of Nike, it's also EVA. So my point here is that if, if it's the same material, you're gonna, all the shoes are going to feel very similarly. All of them are going to feel super safe. Uh, they all say that they change things and they can improve it. And for example, uh, A6, it's a flight foam and Socon is the power run and they have, they're all a trademark and they have their, their, I don't know how they treat the EVA material. But at the end of the day, all of them are EVA and they're going to feel very, very different. From there, we have an improvement of gas infused EVA and what they do there is they like they literally put like carbon or high I think it's carbon I, I can't remember the other, the other uh, component but they infuse carbon to make them lighter and to make them a little more cushionable so the New Balance Fresh Foam it's an improvement if you if you have some regular New Balance and you use the Fresh Foam you can really feel the the difference on, on those and the Puma Nitro also use gas infused EVA so EVA is a little uh, harder. The gas-infused EVA is a little softer. And then we have PEBA or PIVA, and it's like the newest uh, component. 
it's half the weight of EVA. That's why when you, the Zoom, the Zoom X of uh, Nike uh, is this Piva. That's why you, you see them and you can't believe how light they are mm -hmm. when you, when you grab them for the first time. I can't believe they are because the, the material that it's 90, per, I don't know, 90 80% of the shoe, it's that midsole. It's 50%, 50% lighter. And we, the new, the new power PV of Saucony, the ones that have the endorphin three, they're also these new PIVA, PIVA material. And we, we didn't really mention shoe weight, but that's one of the most important things when picking out a shoe that's going to make you fast. The lighter the shoe, the, the quicker you're going to be. But then you want that, the balance and the carbon fiber plate. So these are all materials that allow it to be really bouncy and cushiony, but still super, super light because it's like lifting a feather. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And then we have the TPU that it's called th when it's thermoplastic polyurethane. And the Boost, Adidas Boost, and the A6 Hypergel have those kind of, of material. Uh, talking about quickly about the carbon plates, I was just reading this morning a study that the, the, the secret or the amazingness of the Vaporflies and Alphaflies, it's not that much in the carbon plate. It's more in the PIVA material. That makes sense. The bounce. The, the bounce and the springness. And... One of the things that the World Athletic Federation, I don't know how it's called, did when they like start to restrict these super shoes, it's to, to cap the height. And I think it's 40 millimeters, how high the midsole can be. And that's because the higher the midsole, the more compression you can have and the more return of energy you can have. Think of it like uh, springs. The bigger the spring, the higher mm -hmm. the energy return you, you can have. So the bigger the the stack of the midsole, the more support and energy return you're going to have. So um, I think my point here is I, I explained all the materials. It, 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 it's not going to make a big change if you change shoes in the same midsole material. You're, gonna, you're not going to feel that much of a difference. Maybe we're going to talk pronation next, but... Um, Maybe, right? Maybe the, the support is different, but the bounciness and the energy return from all EVA materials is gonna be, are going to be pretty much the same. The same from the casting fuse, the PIVA, and the TPU. Uh, obviously, the newest one and the best one is the PIVA right now. Um, and more shoes and more shoes are starting to switch to those ones. Shoe technology is millions of dollars. Yeah. Billions probably have been invested in shoe technology to figure all this out. And the thing I can say, because we're, Let's talk about rotation, shoe rotation super quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. It's important. Why, why do you think it's important to have three or four shoes in your rotation? So there, there's been research that's come out in the last couple of years that says it actually helps prevent injuries. So if you think the reason so many runners get injured is because it's a high-impact activity, but so is volleyball and basketball, all the jumping and the sprinting they do. The difference is with running, it's very repetitive. So you take... 170, 180 steps per minute, and you go for a two-hour run, that's hundreds and hundreds of steps. So it's the repetitiveness of the activity that gets you in trouble. So this is why a lot of running physios encourage some trail running, because every step's a little different because of rocks. Now you mentioned in so, a previous episode that trail runners don't get injured otherwise than rolling their ankle and Yeah, they, they get more acute injuries, but yeah. not like the repetitive overuse. So one of the things mixing up and having different shoes, not like five of the same shoe, different shoes, is that it makes the repetition a little bit different. So if I go out on a Monday in my ultras, 
And then on the Wednesday, I've got like Gore-Tex, New Balance, Fresh Foam. So they have a heel toe drop. They're a little bit more supportive. And then the, you know, Thursday, I wear my topos, which are much bouncier. I like them for track. Those are three different types of shoes and three different heel toe drops. They allow me to have a little bit less injury risk because it's not as repetitive. And then you're not like stuck with the same shoe. Like if I'm wearing three different types of shoes when I go to a running shoe store, I don't have to be as careful of what shoe I buy. But if you're in the same shoe every day, all the time, your foot is only used to that shoe and you better be sure you don't make a big change because yeah. you're, you might get in trouble injury wise. Yeah. And I think it goes back to being un uncomfortable. People like, people like, uh, to know what to expect about their shoes and, uh, their routines. And so that's why people, I don't know, I've been running for 12 years in the same shoe. I know, for example, Jeff from our track team, uh, he always runs in Saucony. I can't remember it's like the guide or the ride. Mm -hmm. He's run Boston 13 times and he always runs with Ascension. And it, so it's obviously working for him. Yes. So maybe he shouldn't change that. No, and, <laughs> and that's the point. We, we yeah. say a lot of things and you, you should do that and we recommend that you do this, but it's not set in stone. Yeah, that, these that are suggestions and you have yes. to do what works for you. And what I do, for example, for my shoe rotation is I have, I use Eva materials for my easy runs and my like temperance. I don't want a lot of temperance, but for my easy runs, even materials, they last a lot. You can run and run and run mm -hmm. on those shoes. And then for my speed workouts and racing, I use the Piva materials. So yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and that's another important thing that I think runners, I, I remember perfectly the first time I contacted a running coach in 2010. Uh, it was, okay, what's your running shoe and what's your training shoe? And I was like, I have only one pair of shoes. Mm. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, but with, with, a, with, with years and with experience, I've, I've really noticed the difference in having a race shoe and a, a, a training shoe and different kinds of training shoes because your feet doesn't get used to it. And it, when I use Kimbaras all the time, for example, I always had the same like hotspot in the ball of my left foot. And I always have to like to do use a sandpaper. I know how to, they're like, oh yeah, yeah. To file it down a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. All the time. And now because I'm rotating shoes all the time, I don't have that specific issue. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it really helps. So have a, a few pair of shoes of different materials, of different brands, of different height, height stacks or heel to drop stacks. And if you can have different materials, it, it, it will also help you. Just become a better runner, I believe, over time. Maybe not, like Jeff. He's been mm -hmm. running with the same pair of shoes for 13 or more years and qualifying to Boston every year. Uh, but that we've, we've talked about the minimal gains in the, in the past. So if, I can, if, if a pair of shoes can make a minimal difference in my training and in my racing, I'm going to take it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not necessarily necessary, but I'm going to take it for sure. Yeah, especially at your level where every second kind of counts because you're you've gotten to the point that you're quite fast and you've been running for a long time, so you're not going to see 15 minute improvements in your PB in the marathon. Like you're looking for all the little important things. Yeah, yeah. But I I think it works at every at every level. Mm -hmm. if, even if you're running a five hour marathon, if you improve your shoes, and and, and a one one percent at a five hour marathon and one percent at a three hour marathon, the five hour marathon needs a way more improvement than a three hour marathon. And mm -hmm. it, the same for a 40 minutes 5k or a 20 minutes 5k 1% it's a way bigger difference at 40 minutes than 
that 20 minutes. And um, about pronation, how, 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 what can we talk about pronation here? I, so pronation is one of these things that the running shoe industry has really told us it needs to be fixed. Like when you go into a running shoe store and someone working there looks at your gait, you pronate. So you're rolling your ankle inwards a little bit. And they say, oh, you pronate, so you need a stability shoe. We have to fix your pronation. That's not always the case, and there's no science to support that. But they've it makes sense. Like when someone says, oh, I roll in, and the shoes stop me from doing that. So that's that makes sense. I'll buy those shoes. But pronation is totally normal. You actually have to land on the outside of your heel or, or midfoot and then roll over to the big toe, pronate to the big toe, because otherwise you're driving and towing off through like your pinky toe, yep. which is not nearly as strong as your big toe. So you actually have to pronate. If you don't, it's a big problem. And some people pronate more than others. Just like some people, you know, they're, they're a bit bow-legged or knock me. Like these are just like anatomical alignment things that don't necessarily always need to be fixed. Someone who pronates more might be more at risk of something like a tibialis posterior injury. But unless there's injury troubles. What's a tibialis posterior? So it's the tendon that comes down the inside of your ankle. Okay. So if you pronate a lot, it gets stretched a little bit. Yeah. So, but if you're injury free and you're not having issues, don't feel like you have to correct your pronation. There's a runner from um, Kenya, Gabriel Hassi. I can't remember his last name. Yeah. One of the, he's one of the greats, yeah. yeah. And he pronated so much that the inside of his ankle nearly touched the pavement. And he was like an under 205 for a marathon. Yeah, so he was, he he was Olympic that? champion in 5, 10, 10, 10,000 meters. Yeah. So we don't, we don't necessarily need to correct it all the time. I think that focus needs to be removed. And the orthotic industry has made a lot of money off of it too. <laughs> because oh, you pronate, here's your $800 custom orthotics. But I, I was running with a friend, Matt, on uh, the weekend. We were doing our 26K together. And he said when he realized he didn't need the stability shoe to correct his pronation, he loved how it opened up his options for shoes. Because he would go into a store and only look at the stability shoes because that's what he was told. And now he's like tripled oh, my his goodness, my, open, my world just opened to amazing yeah. shoes. And he's not, he's running 20K long runs and he's not, he's fine. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I so don't a, obsess with pronation. I did an experiment the other day, a social experiment. I recorded myself on the treadmill. In slow motion. I saw this. And I, I upload that to a Facebook group, right? Yeah. The, when, where everyone is super fast to make uh, suggestions and uh, tips. So I just uploaded my video and I asked, go trash my running form. And the first thing that people commented was, you overpronate. You overpronate. Yes. Yeah. But and they're learning that from their local running store. They, there's no science to <laughs> say. It frustrates me. But I just, I think I have a, Decent running form. I've never had. I've, I've improved yeah. it. I used to run awfully, awfully. What I did, I, I did a lot of uh, speed ladder exercises, mm -hmm. and I, I worked for years on my running form, and uh, and that I, that's what I uploaded. I'm I'm sure someone is gonna find something. Oh yeah. And it was curiously enough pronation. Yeah. Okay. The, the last part. <laughs> the last part of the. A running shoe anatomy is the outsole. The outsole is the thing that touches the floor. That's super easy. Uh -huh. What do we want here? Grip. The only thing we want. We want grip yeah. in winter. We want grip in summer. We want grip in the fall, in the spring, when we are racing, when we are training. Grip. Obviously, in, during winter, you you want more grip. Mm -hmm. You want bigger the looks for to 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 clear the snow or the slush or the not ice but <laughs> to clear 
uh, the water. Uh, and during summer or dry season, uh, you want something that has grip, your grip, grip enough so you don't fall. Mm -hmm. And it's as light as possible. And it's usually like a rubber, right? And I feel like most shoes have it. Like it's not something at the running shoe store that you need to look at them. Yeah. In the winter, you want more, obviously. But I think it's something to keep in mind if your shoe's getting old. Like look at the bottom of it. If it's all worn out and the ridges are flattened and you're, you find you have no traction, it might be time for a new pair of shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's no more yeah. to say about That's an also. easy one. Yeah. Thank you. Outsults. Um, okay. So that's. That's the episode. Anything you want to add, like a personal experience or something to doubt about running shoes? I don't think. I think I will just reiterate, if there's anything you take from this podcast, stop obsessing with pronation and using the word overpronation because that's a running physio. Yeah. There is no science behind it. It just tries. That's perfect. Uh, I, my, mine will be try different person shoes. Mm -hmm. I've had, I, I love the alpha flies and the bare flies these days, but I've had Pretty much all the brands, except Asics. I don't like those shoes. I don't know why. People love Asics, but I visually, I don't like them. So I don't mm -hmm. know. Uh, but I tried Brooks and New Balance, Adidas, Saucony, Nike. Uh, what else? Skechers. I've tried You've all of them. you experimented. Yes. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I, very, I feel very comfortable right now with my shoe rotation. And I'm, you have to figure out what works for you. Because yeah. our friend, our friend Nikki... She ran, I believe it was, New, I can't remember if it was New York or Chicago. I think it was New York. And she wore her super shoes for the first time and hated them. Yep. Despised totally. them. They ruined her whole race. I so think that's strange. But... You, have to, <laughs> you have to figure out what works for you. Yeah. So buy a, buy a lot of pair of shoes. You have a starting point right now with mm -hmm. the heel drop, the, the upper, the toe box and stuff like that. You have a, a start, a head start if you want to start experimenting with shoes. And if you have any questions, as always, you can message us in Instagram or the website. So let's go to the runner of the week. Megan Strom. Megan Strom. I, I like her because it's also a new uh, runner of the week that someone recommended. And I love that. Yeah. Keep up the recommendations. And she's she's a great nomination. So... Megan is currently training in Halifax. I believe she trains with the Halifax Road Hammers, which is a running group that I wish I knew of when I lived in Halifax because <laughs> they're doing some pretty amazing things. But she's been nominated for Runner of the Week because her personal best for the marathon is 257.27 in 2021 in Fredericton. She's also done a half marathon in 122.13. In Nova Scotia, and then since then in both Boston and New York, she's done 258, which Boston and New York are tough are courses. Yeah. So to get 258 on those courses, I believe the Fredericton Marathon, if it's the one I'm thinking of, is a pretty fast, flat course. They're not a heels in Fredericton. No, no. It's a like very you flat can, city. You've been there. Yeah, you can. <laughs> so compared to Boston and New York, to only do like 30 seconds slower is, is quite phenomenal. She was also the third Canadian woman, woman across the finish line in New York, which is, which is very impressive. So Megan's currently training for the London Marathon, and she's eager to, to get a new PR, which I feel like... Yeah, it's going to happen, for London sure. Is, if, he, if, he, if she's having a good training cycle, she's going to have it after Boston and New York, 258, she's going to crush it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for her. So Megan, if you're listening, best of luck with your London training, and you're going to do it. Yeah. Thanks to Jeff for recommending her. Yeah, absolutely. 
And chasing sprints, we have two very interesting chasing sprints. I know you're, you're going to say the first one because you love her. I've been following Emily Sisson. She's yeah. so good. She's, she already has the American record in the marathon and the half. And she just lowered her own half marathon record in Houston on the weekend. So she ran 106.52. And I, well, that's, that's a so crazy that's fast amazing. time. amazing, yeah. But I've read a few posts about people running that marathon, and they say that the humidity was really high for Houston in January. So I think it makes it more impressive that the conditions weren't ideal, and she lowered her record by 19 seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's, some, she's someone to watch. I can see her lowering the records even further. And there's the, the American women's running scene. Canadians are doing amazing things as well, but I think there's a lot of women like Sarah Hall and Cara D'Amato. And, yeah, and they're Lee pushing Emily. each other. Yeah, they're just all up really close to each other. And, and they're pushing it's just each other. really fun to watch. And they're all great follows on social media because they post about their training and they're educating. And I'm learning so much from them. And if you want to know how fast 106.52 of a half marathon is, a lot of people, ideal mile race is five minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, if I, that's my fast go. She ran at a pace of 5.07 per mile. 5.07. For 13 miles. Yeah. Or 21K. That is a half marathon. That's, yeah, it's phenomenal. I don't think I could run that even for my little sprint intervals that I do <laughs> at track, so. Uh, yeah, I don't know what. Five, four, five minutes per kilometer, it's 3.01. 3.01, okay. No, th oh, sorry. Five minutes per mile, it's 3.01 or 3.02 per kilometer. So yeah, I just looked it up. So 5.07 is 3.11. 3.11. pace. Pretty long. I could maybe do that for a 100-meter stride. Okay. We'll, maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll try it on, uh, in spring. <laughs> we'll report back. In spring. Yeah, when the footing's good, and we'll get some good video footage, because I don't think I can do it. Yeah, okay, we're going to do it, 100%. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, I, 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 well, sometimes I go into the Reddit rabbit hole, <laughs> like the Twitter rabbit hole. And, yeah. Like, and I found this very interesting 1003 club. Okay. What's the 1000 club? The 1000 club is when you can, if you add your squat, your deadlift, and your bench press weight, how much you can do in each of them. And, and it's a one rep max, right? Yes, like one rep. One K. You can go in, and you add up onto a thousand pounds. You are in that crazy, uh, strong category. But someone suggested, what if we do? The thousand pound challenge plus a sub three hour marathon that will make you strong and fast. I think you you will be like a super athlete, superhuman, super yeah. athlete if you can achieve that. Um, they started to to suggest a few people. I don't know if you know who Nick Bear is. He's like a big YouTuber. No, uh, he was like bodybuilder. He was huge, and now he runs like two fifty marathons. So he could probably do it. Yeah, but they were saying in that Reddit, everyone. Oh, well. He, he's on steroids. Pretty much every, <laughs> every person that anyone suggested on that to uh, Reddit or Reddit was like, he's on steroids, he's on steroids, he's on steroids, he's on steroids. And I wonder if it's fact or just assuming. They are jealous. Yeah. I think 90% of the time <laughs> they are jealous. Um, and the other one that a lot of people suggested is Ryan Hall. That I would definitely not be on steroids. That he's I not think, that kind of athlete. I think that's very probable he because he was it. a 205 marathon runner. Now yeah. he's a bodybuilder or heavy lifter. I know what the difference. He weighs twice as much as he did when he had the American record for the half. But if you can run a 205 marathon and you weighed like 50 pounds more, 
you can lose an hour yeah. during a marathon and that's very probable. But I don't know. I, I thought it was very funny. And obviously I started to add to do my to my math. Okay, I deadlift how much I can do in deadlift, how much I can do in squat. Are you in the club? Yeah. I'm not in the club. <laughs> Me neither. I'm not even close. <laughs> I think my biggest I, I've never done a one rep thing for anything. It and it's risky for runners, right? Because it is very um like a lot of strength coaches who work with runners won't recommend it because the injury risk is really high and the benefits don't outweigh the risks. So we'll tend to get people doing like four sets of six yeah. heavy, but one rep max. You just have to really have a good coach and be very careful and be aware that you could get, get injured. injured. Yeah. yeah. I added I, my mine mm-hmm. doing six reps and it was like five, 500 pounds. Because That's pretty good though. My, but my bench press is like... Uh, a hundred pounds. I'm super no. weak. And as a runner, you don't need crazy, no. crazy strong upper body. But I think I can. When last last fall, I was doing a lot of deadlifts because of your suggestion, and I started. I I weighed. I went up all the way to two fifty for six reps. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. So yeah, I was really really happy with that. So now I have the different goals, but that one is going to be in the back of my mind for a few years for sure. I love it. So thank you very much for listening to another episode of Chasing PRs. See you next week for a special episode on Monday. Absolutely. See you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you love it, give it a share. Please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. And visit chasingprs.run for all the latest episodes, get our free newsletter and all the cool running stuff we have there. Thanks for joining.